Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. On DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. It is, of course, another day, and it is another dollar, and it is another scandal for ITV. Uh, we're hearing all sorts of things this morning about the latest from this morning's stable, and we'll be bringing you all of that news throughout the course of the next three hours. This is the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's unvarnished, I'm afraid, and sometimes it's not particularly pretty. And we'll be talking to Claire Fox this morning, director at the Academy of Ideas, author, of course, as well, uh, and no less a baroness. So we'll be finding out from her what she makes of what went on, of course, up in Oxford at the Oxford Union, uh, where Kathleen Stock uh, had a trans rights protest disrupt her speech uh, about trans rights uh, by people gluing themselves to things. This seems to be now a way of protesting uh, which is becoming universal. It's not just Just Stop Oil that do it. It's not just Extinction Rebellion that do it. Uh, Now we've got the anti-trans lot doing it as well. But we'll be talking about free speech. We'll be talking about the rights and the wrongs of uh, these arguments that are being had up and down the country. We got (coughs) the news last night uh, that something like 800 people uh, have transitioned or have applied to transition uh, in the past year alone, which is a quite big increase on previous years. But still, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny number uh, compared to the population itself. And so in the end, what we're doing here is disappearing up our own backside, talking about something which affects very, very few people, but which must still, to a general extent, be discussed. And we will be discussing it. We'll also talk about AI. A lot of the papers seem to be filled this morning with the woes that AI is going to wipe out humanity. Really? Is it? I don't know why everybody's suddenly so frightened about artificial intelligence. I've got an idea. I think what we should do is somehow program AI to wipe out the wokists, right? So if you're a wokist, you will be wiped out by AI, and that would make perfect sense. You know when in the Terminator they come out and they sort of look you up and down and they figure out what you look like, what size you are, what colour your eyes are? If they can find that you're woke, uh, you get terminated. Simple. And then we won't have any problems in the world. It'd be absolutely fine. We're going to talk about electric cars. Uh, There aren't enough charging points. We kind of knew that, but this is confirmation. We'll be talking about uh, MPs quizzing ITV bosses, which is happening next week. We've got three days of rail strikes underway today. If you're trying to get anywhere, we'd love to hear from you. 0344 499 There's loads of other stuff going on as well. I don't really know where to begin. What about food? What about supermarkets? What about all these people stealing food because apparently they can't afford to buy it anymore? Also, Rakiba San uh, is here because number 10 has apparently paid £1 million to a pro-migrant charity 
uh, that calls UK borders systematically racist. Well, that's not a great start, is it? For heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. And as if that's not enough, Jodie Marsh is going to join us as well. She had a run in with uh, Philip Schofield a few years ago, and she now says that revenge is sweet because he once tweeted, next time I get Jodie Marsh on, maybe I'll ask her permission to ask her a few questions. And she says, well, technically, Philip, there won't be a next time, will there? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Front page of The Sun this morning uh, continues with the uh, saga from ITV. Defiant Holly back on Monday. Well, I'll see whether that happens. I'll see whether we believe that uh, when it comes on Monday. But uh, I think that may not be actually the case. She might want to be back on Monday, but whether or not she is back on Monday remains to be seen. We're hearing some very interesting rumours coming out of ITV Towers this morning. We'll be telling you about all of those coming up just before half past ten when we speak to Hannah Hope, uh, the Sun's entertainment correspondent. Let's kick things off today, though, with Claire Fox, director of the Academy of Ideas, Baroness Fox, of course, as well, author of I Find That Offensive, because... Once again, free speech has been hurled uh, into the front pages. We've got pictures of uh, uh, Kathleen Stott, Stock arriving amid tight security, bodyguards no less, to speak at the Oxford Union because of transgender protests both inside and outside the event, including one uh, where somebody basically glued themselves to the floor. It is quite an extraordinary state of affairs. Let's uh, find out what she makes of it all. Claire, very good morning to you. Good morning. It is remarkable that we've sort of arrived here. I was on the talk last night and saying, I find it quite difficult to believe that we haven't now got two parties to a particular sort of ideology that can argue sensibly with each other about who's right and who's wrong uh, without shouting, screaming, blockading, trying to prevent and disrupt um, people basically speaking. Exactly. I mean, I I thought it was uh, uh, indicative of the problem that there was complaints from people uh, that I heard that, oh, well, this is just, you know, confined to a friendly audience. Mm. But in fact, three people managed to get into that debate who didn't agree definitely with Kathleen Stock and didn't take the opportunity, which would have been the sensible thing to do, to challenge her, argue with her and so on, but actually to try and shout her down. And Mm. one of them, as I say, glued themselves uh, on. It's a real shame, I think, that... Um, generationally, there's an encouragement of young people to say, I refuse to engage with this argument. I mm. refuse to have a discussion with you. I'm going to try and stop you speaking mm. and defame you and uh, absolutely trash your reputation as a bigot. And that's what happens is because, you know, if you're a 18, 19 year old at university and you're told, oh, that lot are bigoted, you don't want to be a bigot, do you? So you kind of go along with it. Mm. But I bet they haven't read Kathleen Stott's book. They haven't considered the issues. And that's what university is meant to be encouraging you to do, to look at all sides. Yeah. I mean, one encouraging thing, I suppose, is that I'm told, according to the Times uh, record of it, the audience booed and one member actually shouted, please leave, we're here to listen to Professor Stock. So at least there is uh, at least a a, a body of, of, of students who are willing to listen to her and who want to hear what she's got to say. Actually, um, Kathleen Stock, in a different debate, I think it was at Cambridge, when she was speaking about the right to be offensive, made the point um, and, and that, in fact, you know, generationally, a lot of young people are frightened to speak out. Yeah. But I'm really delighted that more of them do. You know, there's kind of projects like uh, Living Freedom, uh, like uh, Free Speech Champions, where young students themselves are organising and saying, we want to understand the world we live in 
Hirrell slides, you know, get a sense of the dilemmas when it comes to free speech, but nonetheless are committed to open debate. So, yes, I don't want to pretend or, or, or imply that uh, every young person is uh, a snowflake or anything of that sort. But it's just that there is this problem, I think, which is, is that the grown-ups in the room have abandoned the room. Mm. And when that happens, it, it, it's disorientating for the young. I mean, you made the point, Mike, in your introduction, that there's only, you know, officially 800 people officially wanting to transition. Right. You know, that's up to them if that's what they want to do. But the bigger problem is, is that there's a, almost a social contagion if you go into schools, into sixth forms, where many young people are saying, I refuse to accept the biological reality of sex. And then they go down the, I'll choose one of the, you know, 120 genders. Yes. That's why the person who glued themselves to the floor last night, you know, is Riz, they, them. Although, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, um, but Riz, they, them, who glued herself, I assume, or their selves, um, her dad is an Extinction Rebellion activist who's actually um, on trial for throwing that orange paint over a bank, I think. Yes. So when I say, where are the grown-ups in the room, you can understand that what happens is is that young people are going along with an orthodoxy, which actually adults are often encouraging or frightened to confront in case somebody shouts at them as being a bigot. Mm. And I think that's it's our generation, if you want, that needs to take responsibility for this outbreak of illiberalism and intolerance. And also this dead trans kids slogan that she's got on her T-shirt while gluing herself to the floor uh, is a good example as well of how they kind of warp the truth because what they do is they take, um, you know, global figures for, you know, dangerous events that have happened to trans people and basically include them as if it's a British problem. Most of the figures they use for, for the injuries and, and, and the, uh, the, the kind of harm that's being done to trans individuals is not happening in Britain. No, I mean, it's, it, it's actually likely, and I, and I think on Julia's programme um, that we had, uh, James S. Is, was making this point, um, who works in, in psychotherapy, you know, that what you end up doing is you actually create a mental health crisis you know you basically say to trans or young people who are in going around thinking about their gender in this way as encouraged by adults mm. oh this is going to lead to dangerous events that will destroy your mental health and make you feel suicidal well if anything's likely to make you feel suicidal it's those kind of irresponsible uh, scaremongering tactics and you're absolutely right factually this is not a factor at all, but it's often used. I mean, I've been in situations where young people have said to me, do you realise what you're doing will make me commit suicide? You know, what you're saying. Right. And it's and of course, it's, it's a frightening... It's, when that happens, you know, it's, it has a chilling effect because you don't want to be responsible for damaging somebody. Um, but it's, it's a kind of cry-bully attempt at silencing uh, people mm. by threatening suicide i mean what a terrible uh use of suicide yeah. by the way yeah. which is yeah it's like having some kind of i'm sorry to trivialize it but it's like having some kind of neurotic girlfriend who threatens to kill herself if you go out well yeah and the thing about it is it discredits how serious potential suicides are you know there are very serious issues where sometimes people take their own lives mm. This should be taken with utter seriousness and tr- not trivialized but if it becomes a kind of threat that's used in that way, 
as a way of stopping free speech, irresponsibly used, mm. then what it does is it actually makes a mockery of the serious mental health problems of a very small, small number of mm. young people yeah, who exactly. should be taken more seriously. Exactly right. We've got a clip, I think, of some of these trans activists gatecrashing uh, the event and then speaking outside afterwards. Not about me, where I'm just one of you all trying to protest uh, this speech. She has a right to free speech as much as we has, have a right with our Article 10 and 11 rights to protest. And I exercise those rights. I'm sure you all agree with me that her speech is dangerous, is hateful, and it hurts trans people, particularly trans youth. So she thinks it's dangerous and hateful. This is the other thing that they do, is they say that your speech will make uh, it difficult for me uh, and it will cause me harm, which is an entirely subjective view uh, based upon nothing at all. Well, actually, you know, I wrote the book, I find that offensive, but mm. I've noted recently that what's replaced offence is harm. So the yes. implication is that any speech is harmful, dangerous, and of course, then you effectively equate words with physical violence, with damage in that in that way. Mm. And guess what that justifies? You know, if speech is so dangerous, then you can use any tactics to silence it, including violence. And yeah. we've seen that being used where people have attacked gender critical um, uh, speakers, uh, people who are, are on Kathleen Stock's mm. side, threaten her with violence on the basis that her speech is violence, dangerous, harmful, making people unsafe. Yeah. And we associate safety, of course, with, you know, physical safety. But at the moment, the term has been absolutely expanded now to include anything I disagree with damages me and hurts me, it, as though it's getting punched in the face. Well, yeah. let me assure you, I'd prefer to have a debate than get punched in the face. Yes. No, and you can't and you can't just invent language and you can't just invent new definitions of words in order to no. try and you know stop something else from going on but i i think we have to give credit as well though to the people who are prepared to speak out i mean it is extraordinary that a, a philosophy professor like Kathleen Stock, he certainly didn't ask for the limelight has to be escorted in by security guards mm. but what a class act she was you know she went in very calmly answered questions actually they weren't all questions that were sympathetic some of them challenged her she answered in a rational sensible way people could agree or disagree with uh, those uh, opinions but also she didn't complain about the protest and neither would i mm. everyone's got a right to protest outside an event uh, I've done it, certainly, uh, you know, you can say, I don't, you know, you can shout, do what you want. Yeah. But it's quite people actually use the heckler's veto, which is not to protest outside the event, but to go in and try and stop the event yes. happening. And remember, those protesters actually tried to have the event withdrawn. Mm. They did everything to stop it happening yeah. at all. Because they know that they can shock people into doing that. I mean, we spoke with a student at Cambridge last week or the week before, uh, Charlie Bentley, Bentley Astor, who was trying to put on a, a film that was thought to be, you know, controversial about um, the birth rates uh, going down in Britain and that kind of thing. And basically, um, you know, they tried to uh, stop the event from going ahead simply by threatening it. And so in the end, the authorities said, well, you can't have the event because you can't guarantee everybody's safety. So it's a sort uh, of a exactly. double whammy, it's isn't it? It's, it's often those technical arguments that are behind a kind of um, non-headline grabbing uh, cancel culture mm. it's often you know 
bureaucratic. You have to fill in so many forms or it's a dangerous thing if the demo happens. Mm. And, and it's also worth noting, and I'm glad that you used that example from Cambridge, because I don't want us to become overly obsessed by saying that the only threats in relation to free speech are on the trans issue no. and the gender issue. Because actually you see it increasingly used just as in, in that case in Cambridge. That was the film about, would you believe, birth rate of fertility. Yeah. You know, I nothing to do with trans. No. But somehow it kind of got dragged into it. It can be issues that are people who are critical about critical race theory. We saw Somebody the other day, a, a civil servant, in fact, awarded £100,000 compensation because she was sacked for whistleblowing over the fact that within her civil service department, there was enforced critical race theory being used, um, the idea of white guilt, mm. uh, real discrimination. And she actually spoke out about it, got sacked, yeah. disciplined. So the, the cancel culture meme, you know, you will know yourself that you only have to ask a question about environment and environmentalism. And I've already indicated that your protesters father is uh, an Extinction Rebellion uh, activist and proudly claiming what his daughter did is, you know, in the family. Right. But if you query environmentalism, you'll get called a climate change denier. There's attempts to cancel you. Yeah. So I think that we have to recognise this as a broader phenomenon at its most toxic around the trans issue, but not confined to it, sadly. Mm. No, indeed. Um, stay with us, if you would, Claire. We want to talk to you about AI, because apparently everybody's worried it's going to take care of humanity and we're going to kill everybody off. Uh, I'm not so sure that's going to happen, but I wonder what your view of that all is. Uh, this is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. We are, of course, here all the way through till one o'clock. We'll take your views on all of this stuff as well. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We are here, of course, all the way through for you until one o'clock. And we'll be talking to Hannah Hope from The Sun uh, in a little while about what's going on at ITV. The ITV bosses have now been hauled before MPs. They're going to be appearing before a committee on Tuesday to answer how it is that uh, ITV has spun so far out of control that there's now talk of secret slush funds. There's talk of people being paid off, people signing non-disclosure agreements, people being favoured uh, while being uh, also known to be bullying and harassing people. It's all an awfully big soap opera and we'll be getting to grips with all of that in a moment. Also, uh, we're going to talk to uh, Claire Fox right now, Director of the Academy Ideas, about AI, uh, which could apparently wipe out humanity. But before we get to that, Claire, have you, have you got any thoughts on the whole this morning debacle, the, the, the whole kind of uh, public soap opera that's been played out before our very eyes? Nothing that's not already been said. <laughs> my, my, only, my only comment is not, it's not preoccupying me as much as some people but, but I think the, the, the cover-up is always the deal, right? It is, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, you always, I think there's just something at the moment where so many people, and this includes myself, by the way, whether it's the lockdown period, whether it's, um, you know, just generally what's happening in politics, mm. um, it, it feels as though people in the establishment um, feel that they can get away with things behind the backs of the public. Now, I don't want to know every intimate detail of how TV or radio stations are run. I'm not interested in how talk TV's run. Mm. But when you feel as though you're being conned and I think being gaslit, really, yeah. uh, where they basically say to you, nothing to see here, go away, when there's kind of rumours and then you kind of find out, well, there is actually. Well, this is the uh, thing. I mean, when you see, when you remember things like, you know, Holly and, and Phil doing that ridiculous hug inside plastic, you know, during COVID, which was quite an iconic image, if you remember it. 
And you think of what the, the sort of editorial process is to get to that point and the message that they're giving out to an awful lot of people who might not really know any better, uh, to be honest, and who might think that's what's going to be happening to you in the future. It's quite an interesting and dangerous sort of, sort of kettle of fish, really. Well, when it comes to mainstream media, one of the things that's happened with programmes like This Morning and, and kind of daytime TV is a lot of people are quite cynical about the news, but they feel as though they've got a relationship mm. with people like Holly and Phil yeah. of a kind of trusted friend, you know, that they're somehow not biased. Mm. Whereas actually, I mean, that's that in and of itself is a kind of manipulative uh, angle to yeah. it because people yeah. did feel, I think, like you just said, you know, that they were empathetic, that they understood how people felt. Mm. And that plastic, that gruesome, gruesome plastic sheeting outside the care home mm. was one of the most disgusting things of the of the lockdown. But you couldn't criticise them because they were unimpeachable. Yes. Now, that's not quite true. Yes, I think so. What are you making of all this AI stuff as well? I mean, front page of Daily Mail, AI could wipe out humanity. The threat as bad as nuclear war must be tackled. I mean, I find myself completely unmoved by these, you know, calls for, you know, Armageddon to kind of approach and AI pioneers, fear extinction. I mean, these are the geeks that invented it. And now they're saying they're a bit worried about what they've done. Well, there's, there's two aspects to it. I mean, one, we've just talked about lockdown. I mean, we've got to be careful about, you know, when people start talking about existential mm. threats, things wiping out humanity, because... In my view, we've heard that rather a lot recently, haven't we? Because we it have. was COVID, it's climate change, yeah. it's you know anything that moves can be a threat. But of course, every new, by the way, technological breakthrough, from motor car to planes to uh, uh, modern medicine, can be a major threat. Mm. But the the crisis that's being talked about, the scaremongering language indicates that what's happened is we've lost faith actually in humanity to deal with yes. the pros and cons of a situation. Of course, artificial intelligence is a real challenge. It's completely different. We're all, you know, we're all looking at it uh, and thinking, oh, wow, this mm. could mean that every, you know, kid at school cheats, we'll never know, deep fakes, will we ever know yeah. who a real person is? But actually, we're, we've created artificial intelligence. Yeah. Well, making. that's what worries me more about this than anything else, because normally speaking, all of those things you mentioned, aeroplanes, cars, you know, machinery, that was all going to wipe out the, the, the workforce. And it was the Luddites, famously, who were the ones who were kind of standing in the way of change, saying, oh, we don't want that. That would be terrible. These people are the ones who invented it. So they're actually it, kind of trying to make us feel that what they've invented is even more important than they said it was. Well, first of all, I mean, they, they, as you you've indicated, exactly the point is it's not all of the con, it's not all of the inventors, but I think that what they're saying is we don't trust you, the public, right. to handle this well. We're the clever ones who invented it, but now that it's becoming popular, mm. well, of course, that's a bit like the cinema, you know, or any of these things. It's like you know, it's like reading. In fact, mm. you know, it was fine when only a few people could do it, but as soon as the masses did it, oh my God, it's going to be a dangerous weapon. Right. It's going to lead to the end of the world. Yeah, but it's also the case that. I sat during a Lord's debate on the uh, online safety bill, um, which is a great, <laughs> if you want an existential threat, that's it, because it's going to really have a big impact on free speech. And they were talking about artificial intelligence in one of the amendments. And I was just, I, I had a speech prepared all about saying we need balance and we have to remember the positive sides and not be negative. And before I got to speak, there was about 10 contributions that described in graphic detail the uses of AI when it came to porn, pornography right. and, and the deep fake use of pornography 
pornographic images and avatars and, and so on um, to uh, in relation to children. Mm. And I thought, what a grim use of imagination and curiosity that the only thing that you've come up with is this terrible use of AI. Well, everything can be used terribly, but I wanted to counter that and still want to counter it with that brilliant story of the man who has been paralyzed and through the use of artificial intelligence can now walk yeah. just by thinking about it because of artificial intelligence. We've got to see that this is a tool and how we use it is up to us. But to make it seem as though it's kind of out there beyond our control, mm. as I say, has a dim view of human beings. And I don't share that dim view. No. We I have to make sure it's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. And I think we ought to be more sort of confident in our own ability to, to, to change and to adapt and to deal with it. And I think you're absolutely right. Claire, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Claire Fox, director of the Academy of Ideas, author, of course, as well. I Find That Offensive is the book. Uh, and you can find her in the House of Lords. Sometimes being offensive, sometimes not. Uh, this is the way we are. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. Coming next, Hannah Hope's going to join us with the latest from ITV. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on and lots to do today. Of course, we're keeping one eye on ITV uh, and the world headquarters of Woke because, of course, there's bound to be somebody saying something. Uh, very rarely does half an hour go by without somebody coming out and doing something or other, uh, which kind of further sets fire to the heather. Uh, yesterday we had uh, Philip Schofield, we had uh, um, Eamon Holmes, of course, saying what he said. Uh, we had Holly Willoughby today uh, basically announcing that she thinks she's going to be back on Monday, but also removing all mentions of ITV this morning uh, from the header page of her Instagram account. So there's lots of runes within runes. Also questions being asked about Carolyn McCall, the chief executive. What does she know? When did she know it? She's on three and a half million quid a year. Uh, how is it possible that she had no clue about what was going on inside her own organisation? particularly when some of the people that she has working for her, she brought with her from EasyJet. Uh, so they were sort of very much henchmen, keeping an eye on the shop, as it were. Coming up later on in the show, Chris Snowden's going to join us, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. They've produced something called the Nanny State Index uh, for 2023, uh, in which they've found out that Britain actually is a bit of a nanny state, believe it or not. 0344 499 will take loads of your calls, of course, as well. Right now, though, let's talk to Dr. Rakiba San, uh, who is, of course, a social policy analyst. Uh, he's got a new book coming out soon, but he wants to talk to us about Migration Nation, which is what we've been talking about for quite some time, this month anyway. Uh, I can't believe, by the way, it's going to be the end of May in uh, another day or so. We're going to be straight into June. It's still not very summery, I have to say. Uh, but Rakib wants to talk about the state of the nation, the state of the migration nation because we've had all sorts of statistics uh, it is a time bomb literally waiting to go off not just uh, for society in this country but very definitely for Rishi Sunak and the Tory party. Rakeem a very good morning to you welcome. Morning Mike how are you? Yeah very well indeed I mean we've been talking pretty much non-stop about migration for about the last two weeks ever since we knew that these new figures are going to come out not just about the uh, small boats and the illegal migration but the legal migration that's going on uh, which it turns out amounts to something like 1.2 million extra people coming here uh, in uh, 2022 they call it a net migration figure of 600,000 because another 600,000 went away but I'm more interested, actually, in the 1.2 million figure because that is new people coming in and we're not really clear about who's going out. No, absolutely, Mike. As you say, the net migration figure of 606,000, that is a record high. And it's, uh, it's a world away from former Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron's promise 
to slash net migration to the tens of thousands. And, and I think it's very clear that uh, the Conservative Party have lost a great deal of public confidence yeah. in its ability to create a, a well-controlled and well-managed mm. immigration system to the extent that we're seeing uh, consistently now in the polls, Mike, that Labour is even more trusted than the Conservatives when it comes to the issue of immigration. And as you mentioned, in the post-Brexit era, what we've seen is a fundamental shift in the nature of um, immigration. It, now we have uh, it's predominantly non-EU nationals coming into the UK, right. especially from Commonwealth countries, India, Nigeria and Pakistan. And actually, and net migration when it comes to EU nationals is in the negative. Mm. Um, the, the, the most recent figure being minus 51,000. So there's a real change there in terms of our immigration story. Yes. And what we know so far about those that are coming in, many of them coming on um, at, uh, student visas to study uh, at various universities up and down the country, some of them bringing dependents, some of them not. Also, some coming mm. in, most of those coming in with work visas appear to be going into either the NHS or social care, which, of course, are jobs that, that need to be done. But they're not what you would relatively uh, normally call high-skilled jobs, are they? Well, I, I think that the, for some time, what we've had in this country is an economic model which is ultimately about high immigration and low public investment. Mm. Uh, as you talked about there in terms of the NHS and social care uh, roles, uh, one of the first things that the Conservative Liberal Democrat Coalition did was slash NHS bursaries yeah. uh, for our own citizens. And I think those are areas, Mike, where the government has a great deal of control in terms of um, funding training, uh, providing bursaries, and also improving working conditions. Mm. So those professions are more appealing for the domestic population. Yeah. And, and the government's been very much sleeping at the wheel. And I think that when more generally, when you're looking at the immigration system, as you, you talk about there, a great deal uh, are international students, but they're bringing a relatively high number of dependents yeah. uh, with them, which many people won't particularly understand why that's the case. And I also question the argument that many international students, they're attending the very most prestigious universities in the country. Uh, they're studying courses which will be of great economic benefit to the country. That's actually not true. Mm. So, but the issue is, Mike, is that many of our universities, especially middle and lower order universities, that's what I call them, they're heavily reliant on the international studies and also the social activities yeah. of, of international students. So, so there's an immigration dilemma there. So there's, there's many tensions at play when it comes to our immigration story. Yeah, I think so, because it seems to me that, uh, you know, while the education sector may well be benefiting from some of this money that's coming in, mm. you know, the University of North East Berkshire, or whatever it's called, isn't necessarily going to be the place um, that's going to have much benefit for the rest of the country. And it seems to me you'd have to be a uh, man with a heart of stone not to believe that some of these people are coming here simply to live here. We know, for example, I saw an advert that the British Council had put out in India telling people uh, that if you do come here to study, here's how you can stay for an extra two years once you graduate. And I think we also know, um, without being too kind of, you know, cynical, that some of these people will be coming to sign up for a course and then they'll just disappear into the black economy. Well, I think that ultimately what we have to curb is the gaming of our immigration system. And I think that this comes to the central point that we've had Conservative-led mm. rule for 13 years now, Mike. Yeah. And that there's there's very clear instances where our immigration system is being somewhat exploited. But the Conservative Party, we've been in government since 2010, 
have been very much sleeping at the wheel over mm. these kind of issues. Yeah. And how did you think they got to this point? Do you think they just kind of took their eye off the ball? Do you think they didn't really have enough kind of stringent policy? Is it the Home Office to blame? You know, because it suddenly ballooned into this massive figure, which is totally unsustainable. And even, you know, the Labour Party were agreeing with that. Well, I think the point that to be made is that our post-Brexit immigration system, the points-based system, is actually incredibly liberal. Yeah. I think that's the point that we have to make. Right. I think that more generally as well, Mike, if you want to wean our country off immigration dependency, you have to invest in domestic skills. Yeah. You have to have an active industrial strategy. You need to invest and fund significant upgrades in our social infrastructure. Mm. And especially when it comes to the NHS and social care, you have to make the working atmosphere there more attractive for, for our own citizens to occupy those roles. These are all things that the government simply has been sleeping at the wheel. Mm. And they, they, so, so what you need, if you want to reduce immigration over time, or what, or what I'd say this concept of immigration dependency, if you want to wean the country off that, that requires a great deal of investment. And we haven't done that for some time. No, we haven't. But yet, here we are with another six uh, 100,000 people coming in. Our, our immigration numbers have been so huge that I'm told that over the last sort of six or 10 years, um, we've allowed something like 7 million people into this country, and that has boosted the population by 7 million. And it's an extraordinary number when you think of, you know, it's basically 10% of the population. No, absolutely. And I think that I've often said uh, in many of our conversations that we are one of the most successful uh, multiracial, multi-ethnic democracies in the world. But we shouldn't take liberties with that. And the reality is that social cohesion is something that's very difficult to sustain mm. and manage. Uh, and, and there's also discussion about the sustaining the welfare state as well. You, you need high levels of social trust and you need a stable national membership to support uh, the social bonds, which ultimately help mm. to sustain an all-encompassing welfare state. So to have these um, th th this rate of immigration, I think that that really needs to be an important part of the conversation when it comes to immigration control. Yes, I think so. Let's talk a bit about some of the other ways that people get help to come here, though. And of course, the government is now, it turns out, funding a pro-migration advocacy group uh, called the um, Paul Hamlin Foundation, the PHF, a left-wing charity, uh, was in receipt of £1.36 million of government grants since 2020. And what we know about these kinds of groups is that, you know, while they may not be kind of, you know, actively sort of cooperating with people to bring them to this country, what they do do is give them an awful lot of advice about how to stay here. Uh, absolutely. And I think that that particular story, um, for me, it, it, it doesn't come as... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As much of a surprise mm. to me, Mike, if truth be told, because uh, in the past, there have been cases of prevent funding, state funding, uh, which is designed uh, for anti-terrorism and anti-extremism purposes, being allocated to groups which have expressed extremist views yeah. and extremely divisive narratives. We also have a government which, you know, talks a big game when it comes to women's rights and radical transgenderism. But in recent times, the state has provided funding for groups and organisations which support radical transgenderism yeah. and exceptionally liberal forms of gender self-identification. So it, it, it's it's quite remarkable that, in a way, uh, the state funding is being allocated to groups which are working against the government's agenda. Right. Yeah, uh, which is quite sensational. Well, it really is. And I mean, what's the government's kind of excuse for doing this? I mean, where in the government's kind of mandate that they got from the people of this country does it say that you should be funding basically organisations which call, by the way, um, the uh, the idea of um, of closed borders um, a kind of far right dream and they're kind of quite critical um, of the systemically racist systems that uh, apparently run UK borders. What the hell are we doing giving these people money? It's absolutely remarkable. I find it. I find it amazing that, that the UK's borders could be described as systemically racist. Right. Well, when I, I mean, if they were, of, if they were, I think they'd be quite so porous as they are. Well, absolutely, and I'd also make the point that much of the uh, much of the new arrivals to the UK originating from countries such as India, Pakistan, and Nigeria. Mm. That's a very odd um, border system to have if it's so it's systemically racist that you wouldn't have that kind of outcome. Uh, the reality is that, that there's there's a great deal of support for reducing immigration across the country. And Mike, that cuts across a variety of ethnic mm. and religious communities that yeah. live in the country. Um, I, I'd give one example, that, uh, a polling that was recently done by Unheard uh, and conducted by Focal Data. It found that the majority of voters in constituencies such as Leicester East and even my one of Luton North mm. believe that immigration is too high. These are parts of the country which have incredibly high ethnic minority populations. So I think that this argument that reducing immigration or managing it in a more regimented way is in some way racist or bigoted, right. that's simply not true at all. Well, surely we have to get away from that conversation now because the numbers and sheer numbers of people coming here would suggest that, you know, this country cannot possibly be seen as racist around the world because if it was, why would all these people be coming here? No, absolutely. Um, I'd also make the point with the net migration figures, Mike, that there are somewhat driven by uh, humanitarian factors. Mm. Uh, that would include Ukrainian citizens who are fleeing the Kremlin's uh, war machine, yeah. uh, Hong Kongers who are escaping from Chinese state tyranny. Mm. So we have to really go away from this argument that Britain is an ungenerous, uh, not particularly compassionate place. Mm. It is. But saying that, if you want to integrate people properly and you want to sustain social cohesion, then it is important to have a controlled immigration system with integration at the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely right. And let's finally talk about the Home Office, because the Home Office 
it would seem, and from anybody who you talk to about it, uh, would agree, is not really fit for purpose. We now find out that uh, there's all kinds of threats going on. I think already the border force was suing the government over some of their policies of, uh, of trying to send uh, boat people back to where they came from in France. But now we're hearing um, that the blob, as it's known, uh, inside of the Home Office wants to actually do away uh, with the Rwanda policy by going on strike in order to stop it being, from being implemented. Well, I think there's many. There seems to be many um, employees within the civil service who have suddenly forgot. They've forgotten about why they're actually there yeah. and, and what the purpose that they serve. They're ultimately there to help the government implement its agenda. Yes. Uh, and 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 the reality is that it seems like there's too many civil servants. They feel that it's their role to correct the government on these kinds of issues. Right. Now, they can, they're, they're in an advisory capacity and they can offer their professional guidance. No one's arguing with mm. that. But I think to be so obstructionist uh, when it comes to the policies of a democratically elected yeah. government, I do think that's a serious problem. Well, I think so, because it's not, as you say, it's not for them to go up against a democratically elected government trying to carry out mm. the will of the people, as Sula Braverman calls it, and, and being stymied at every point because they are kind of ideologically opposed to what they are being ordered to do. And they're not supposed to be ideological. Absolutely. And I make a point about the small boats emergency, Mike. The reality is uh, it's predominantly young males who are unattached. They're not coming with uh, family members. And they're coming from countries ranging from Albania to mm. India. Yeah. No, they're not conflict-ridden territories by yes. any stretch of the imagination. And, and I think I'd make this point. That means that we have an oversaturated asylum system which is which are leaving women and girls who are at major risk of sexual violence mm. in their homelands by the wayside. But you don't hear that argument being made from a liberal perspective, and I think that's a real shame. No, but that's the other argument you hear from a liberal perspective, is that well, people come on these small boats because there's no safe way to come any other way. Well, excuse me for mentioning it, but there's 600,000 people that have come a safe way. So that's absolutely and utterly untrue. No, absolutely. And I think that, that there is also uh, the possibility that Indian nationals in eastern times, they've increased uh, through the small boats route. Yes. And I think that, that quite often these are individuals who are not able to obtain a work visa or a student visa. Uh, that, so, so essentially, that those legal routes that were there, for one reason or the other, they didn't, perhaps they didn't qualify mm. uh, for, for those visas. And they're now coming through this route. And I'd make this point as well, Mike, something that many people don't know that if you come through that route and then you study here, but if you claim for asylum, your international fees, they drop to domestic level. Mm. So actually it's seen as a way that they can save money and it's more cost effective for them to do so in terms of studying for a course whilst claiming asylum. So I think that this is what I mean when it comes to the gaming of our immigration system and that needs to be rectified. Yeah, absolutely right. Your book's out in June, Rakeem, so hopefully we'll um, uh, get you back on then. What's it, uh, what's it looking at? So ultimately, the book is something that we've discussed many times uh, before, Mike. It's ultimately about the more conservative traditional values in many Labour voting ethnic minority communities. Yeah. So it talks a great deal about how radical cultural liberalism has taken hold in the Labour Party and the risk that that poses in terms of alienating, well, in my view, loyal traditional ethnic minority voters, many of them who have supported Labour over generations. 
Um, and, and it's ultimately arguing for if that Labour focuses more on the traditional triad of faith, family and flag, it can shore up its relationship with those traditional minded ethnic minority mm. voters. Interesting. I look forward to seeing that one. Dr. Rakib Hassan, a social policy analyst, of course, uh, he'll be back with us uh, come next couple of weeks uh, in June when his new book comes out. We've got more to do. Lots of your calls today. And I've got some information for Just Stop Oil, by the way. It's all coming up next. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We will take more of your calls, of course. James says this. Uh, Hi, Mike. Great job with that Labour MP lady. If you don't mind my saying, maybe you missed a trick. What other groups does she hate? Does she hate all Brexiteers, for example? Well, probably, uh, which would be made up of folk who vote for various parties. Best wishes, James. Yeah, this is the woman, uh, Charlotte, uh, who came on the Labour MP from Warrington, who declared that she hated Tories uh, and was quite happy for people to shout F the Tories, despite the fact that she was complaining constantly that online abuse uh, was really something terrible and could sometimes lead uh, to real-life tragedy. Uh, she didn't seem to see the connection uh, in calling people uh, who uh, voted Tory um, absolutely despicable individuals. She didn't seem to mind uh, that saying that she hated Tories also covered not only the government, not only all MPs, but anyone who actually identified as a Tory. The world has gone completely mad. Let's talk to Chris Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. Uh, that's the Institute of Economic Affairs. They've produced the Nanny State Index. He himself has, in fact, uh, for 2023. And so if you thought you were living in a nanny state, you'd be right. Chris, a very good um, morning to you. Morning, Mike. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of stories around about the nanny state lately. And I'm, I'm slightly worried that people's first grasp for, for any kind of help is to now ask the state for it. You know, I can't pay my electricity bill. Give me a handout. I can't pay my mortgage. Give me a handout. You know, I can't afford a car. I need some help with that. You know, the state seems to be very happy to borrow money from you and I to give to people who can't afford to live the lifestyle they're living. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things about a lot of government intervention is is people become uh, so used to it that they're unable to, um, you know, try and make their own decisions. I was just uh, reading a story from BBC Wales earlier about this panic about e-cigarettes. And someone from Public Health Wales was saying, well, the fact that they're legal and you can buy them in shops makes people think that they're perfectly safe and you should buy them. (laughs) I mean, that's that kind of state you get to when when people are used to the government banning everything. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, people look at uh, hygiene ratings of, you know, kebab shops and go, well, I'm not going there. And you go, well, it's a kebab shop. You know, you've had too much to drink. It's 11 o'clock at night. Um, Are you really going to be that bothered if it's got a one hygiene? rating uh, or do you really want a kebab you know you're not expecting it to be haute cuisine uh, it might even upset your tummy uh, in the morning but you're going to have one anyway aren't you uh, well it depends what kind of state you're in mike i don't know <laughs> i mean I'm not, I'm not we're not really so, so worried about you know basic hygiene standards uh, what we're looking for in the nanny state index is this over regulation which is designed to stop people yeah, no, but I can't. But it's, but it's all part of the same thing, though, isn't it? Because I mean, before they had hygiene ratings, you had no clue what was going on in a restaurant, and now supposedly you're meant to judge it by some bozo who's gone in there and inspected it. Well, you, the, you, that's really the um, the Food Standards Agency. You know, it was set up because there were a number of poisonings in restaurants, yeah. and it's been interesting to see over the course of the last twenty years how there's been this mission creep that you get with these quangos. Yeah. And I think it's one thing to be inspecting restaurants, make sure there's not rats running everywhere. But then it comes out, and, you know, when there's a World Cup on, it says to people, you know, make sure you don't do, drink too much, try not to eat too right. many burgers. Right. And the, these agencies always go beyond their remit and start interfering in people's personal choices, you know, informed choices. Yes. Well, these are the same people that tell you to make sure you may wear a hat or something, or when you're travelling on the tube in London, please carry a bottle of water with you and actually have these announcements going out. It's almost as though 
They want to be uh, telling you how to live. Well, there's a lot of bureaucrats in the country and they all need uh, a way of justifying their living and they want to expand their bureaucracy. Mm. So, they, yeah, they're, they're always looking at new things to get involved in. The, the latest one really is uh, is food and, and soft drinks. And in the nanny state index, the UK is the second worst country in Europe after Hungary. And right. Hungary has a huge number of taxes and all sorts of foods called the chips tax. Uh, but we don't really want to be emulating Hungary, nor do we want to be emulating Turkey, which comes top overall in the nanny state yes. index system. Yeah, I mean, interesting conclusions in the report include that the number of countries that now place those kinds of taxes on sugary drinks and things have actually gone up. So there's more countries joining the old uh, nanny state bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is down to governments trying to make some money. You know, they, they, we're not alone in Britain in uh, getting into a huge amount of debt, particularly over the course of the pandemic. And so governments are always keen to put taxes on things. Let's be honest, George Osborne put the tax on sugary drinks to make mm. a bit of money. Uh, it wasn't because he was particularly bothered about uh, the amount of sugar kids were drinking, I don't think. And in, if you look across Europe, where you know most of the countries now, more than half the countries in the index are now taxing sugary drinks, right. most of those countries are also taxing drinks that don't have any sugar. They're just taxing fizzy drinks per yes. se. So it gives the game away, I think. This is not really about health. It's about trying to make a bit of money. Well, it's a bit like Sadiq Khan and his clean air solution, isn't it? I mean, his solution is not to make the air cleaner. It's to charge you for polluting it. Yes, indeed. And we just saw a story yesterday, didn't we, about how um, yeah, local councils are making a lot of money out of these 20-mile-hour limits. Um, you know, often if you if you follow the money, you, you do find an explanation for a lot of this stuff. Mm. On the other hand, there's a lot of regulation that, doesn't get the government any money it just gets them a pat on the back from the likes of jamie oliver yes well again i mean we're living in a world where advice is uh, everywhere around you even if you don't want it you know if you get in a car in london you're more than likely to be stopped by somebody from just stop oil uh, he's going to tell you you shouldn't be driving it uh, or you might get to an airport to find that there's some protester there telling you, you shouldn't get on an airplane or you know there's somebody down the supermarket pouring milk on the floor telling you that you shouldn't be drinking dairy products because it's killing the cows you know i mean where's it going to end uh, well, yeah, it's that kind of nannying and scolding and also warnings all the time. You know, last week, the, the Irish said they were going to start putting health warnings on alcohol. And, you know, at, at some point, I think it gets to the stage where, you know, there's so many warnings that people just kind of stop paying attention to them. Mm. If you're trying to make everything seem as if it's as dangerous as cigarettes, nothing is. You know, it's like um, with the nut allergy uh, warnings, you know, a lot of companies, food companies, they're just covering their backs legally by saying this product may contain nuts. Often there's very little chance, if no chance at right. all, it's going to contain nuts. And what happens? People who actually have nut allergies just get so used to seeing everything saying may contain nuts, <laughs> they take their chances. Right. It's completely counterproductive. It is. Also, do you remember when they brought in those calorie counts on menus and then now they've done away with them again because apparently they became sort of counterproductive because either people didn't eat uh, things that they thought were too calorific uh, or they just ignored it and went oh, to hell with it. I know I'm going to get fat. I'm just going to eat it anyway. Uh, they haven't got rid of them, actually, Mike. They've, they've still got them there. But, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I thought they'd remove them all. No, it came it came in as law last year, I think. There's no plans, as far as I know, to, to get rid of that. Mm. But, yeah, the, the, I mean, again, interesting unintended consequences with that, insofar as uh, a lot of people with eating disorders are really unhappy about it. People who are you know, suffering from anorexia trying to get over this idea of ca uh, calorie counting and constantly thinking about calories. They found the whole thing rather upsetting so we shall see if it's ever properly evaluated what they what the trade-off is there mm. between you know uh, benefits and and harms but yeah. I, i'm not sure there's a great deal of benefit to it no indeed and i see one of the tweets you put out on the back of this is the department of health and social care 
uh, tweet in which they say that introducing restrictions on where less healthy food is placed in supermarkets are expected to bring health benefits of over 57 billion quid. I love how they come up with these figures. Nobody can ever tell you how they do that. But how do you think they've come up with 57 billion? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> they see if, if they're being quoted correctly, they are pinning that 57 billion on a single policy, quite right. a small policy, which yeah. is just banning so-called junk food from being uh, being positioned in at the end of aisles and at the entrance and at the exits. I, I, God knows. I mean, they have to do these impact assessments in order to make these policies look as if they're going to work. Mm. And if you've ever read one, you'll see that they're quite creative. But I I don't know. Is it a typo? Did they mean 57 million? And if even if it's million, um, they will be using what they call intangible benefits. Yes. In other words, stuff that is makeup. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? They do just make it up. It's a bit like um, all of the other warnings that you get for almost everything that we now do. You know, like don't walk too close to the cliff edge. Um, you know, don't drive your car down a road which might be a bit too narrow. Um, you know, it's 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 incredible how this business, because it is a business now, uh, has, has racked itself up. I mean, my favourite message, I think, from the COVID uh, years was when somebody sent me a picture of a, a sign outside of GP surgery which said, please do not enter if you are unwell. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's a doctor's surgery, that. for God's sake, you know. Yeah, no, I didn't see that one. Look, I mean, you're right. You know, we, we are surrounded by uh, endless scares, really, you know, um, and, you know, some warnings are, are worthwhile. I think most of them, and not, I think a lot of them right. are just patronising, tell us things that we already know. You know, a sunny day, make sure you open the windows, turn off the heating. Yeah, well, yeah thanks for that. And is, I mean, is there, there any, that kind of stuff? I was going to say, is there any evidence that it, has, that it is changing people's behaviour? Well, the stuff that we look at in the United States Index, which is mostly syntaxes, you know, on, on mm. booze and sugary drinks and so on, but and also various forms of regulation, so like minimum pricing, plain packaging, that kind of stuff. We we uh, map the scores that each country gets. The higher the score, the worse the country, basically, if you believe in freedom. Yeah. Um, we, we map those scores against the life expectancy, uh, uh, against smoking rates, against per capita alcohol consumption, absolutely no correlation mm. with anything whatsoever. Mm. So this stuff really doesn't work. It just makes people a bit more miserable and, and, and a little bit poorer. Yeah, and one of the things that's happening as a result of people being a little bit poorer and, and say, shopping um, getting more expensive, and particularly grocery shopping, is that loads of shop supermarkets are now getting a plague of shoplifting. Um, we were doing a story last night about how in Marks and Spencers in a lot of places now, they put out one steak because they put like loads of steak out. People just nick them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my local co-op has security tags on the uh, on the joints of meat. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad sign of our times. If you see the price of meat, you can kind of understand why people are having to steal it. To well, right. Well, this is it. I mean, I mean, how about they actually just put the prices down a bit? Maybe that would be a start rather than actually you know hiding all the food. Well, that's what Rishi Sunak is planning to do. We'll see how he gets on with that. Yeah, I, well. yeah I think I think you'll find that supermarket margins are a bit tighter than he's expected yes i think he's the king of the nanny state sadly i mean this is a guy who seems to want to put his nose into almost everything and, and advise us when we don't need it a big fan of coca-cola though he's uh, one of his big hobbies is, oh, yeah. is reading about coca-cola and he's particularly keen on the mexican version where they use a different type of sugar oh, is he? so i suspect deep down he's, he's against the uh, sugary drinks tax but yeah. i doubt who will actually get around to repealing well, we it. Should. I suppose he's got more to worry about than that at this particular moment in time. Christopher, thanks very much indeed. Christopher Snowden, the Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute for Economic Affairs. We do live in a very nanny state world now, don't we? Which seems to me uh, to be entirely unnecessary. 
I mean, I don't need to be told to put one foot in front of the other. I don't need to be told. I was on an escalator the other day, and it was reminiscent of the old uh, social distancing rules because they had a sort of a pair of feet painted on one step, and then five steps further up, another pair of feet. So presumably you're supposed to stand five stairs away from the person next to you, uh, and then another further five further back. I mean, why? Just why? What's the point? Ridiculous. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got loads going on between now and one o'clock. Of course, it's the final hour of the show and we are now into the afternoon. You've heard it's going to be the hottest day of the year so far. It didn't seem like that this morning. It's a bit chilly, I'd have to say. Uh, anyway, we're going to hear from all of you. Uh, if you want to get your voices heard, this is the place to do it. 0344 499 1000. We've been talking about a great many things, uh, including, of course, the latest from ITV. Uh, because at the moment, uh, what we've been told from um, Holly Willoughby's front is that she's going to be coming back next week to front uh, this morning. I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. Uh, we've got Carolyn McCall, who is the chief executive, being asked an awful lot of questions for her £3.5 million salary uh, as to who knew what and when. Uh, there's accusations that Phil uh, was paying off or somebody was paying off, whether it was Phil or whether it was ICV, uh, the young man uh, who Philip was supposedly having an affair with. Uh, we believe it might have been as much as £300,000. We don't know what that was paid as. Was it paid as redundancy money? Was it paid as hush money? Was there a slush fund? Uh, you know, is there some form of uh, NDA agreement that he has that means he can't say anything? He still remains unidentified. We're not going to identify him here. But what we are going to do today and right now is talk to Jodie Marsh, TV personality, of course, owner of Fripps Farm Animal Rescue, uh, a woman who's known a few sofas in her time on daytime TV. Uh, let's talk to her now and find out what she made of her encounter uh, with Philip Schofield a few years ago. Uh, Jodie, very good afternoon to you. Hello, thanks for having me. Not at all. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, I mean, let me ask you first of all, um, are you one of those people who sort of wasn't that surprised when this all blew up and, and, and watched it with sort of ever-increasing amazement over the course of the last well, week or so? I actually, knowing I was coming on here, I tried to find it on my Twitter. Yeah. But I actually was tweeting about this years ago. Right. I mean, years ago, saying that there was something going on and there mm. was something wrong. Yeah. And um, I got abuse for it. I got people saying, why are you being horrible to Philip? Yeah. Why are you being nasty? And everybody seemed to think, because I was on there one time where I had um, lipstick on my teeth. Right. And neither Phil or Holly told me I had lipstick on my teeth. Right. Um, and they, they let me do the whole interview looking stupid, basically. Right. Now, everybody thinks that my grudge against them is because of the lipstick gate. Right. Well, it's not at all. It's right. because both of them are vile and rude. Both of them, Holly right. included. And I've been saying for years that, in my opinion, Philip Schofield could possibly be like the next Jimmy Savile. Right. Yeah, so well... I've been saying for years... Yeah, but I mean, that's your opinion. I can't obviously that's go along opinion. with that. Um, but the point is, more importantly, I suppose, um, I'd like to talk to you about why you would say they are so rude and vile to you. What, what, what sort of things did they do and say? So uh, the last time I was on this morning, um, I was on to talk about freezing my eggs because um, as an older woman who was still single, still am single, mm. um, if I wanted to have a child, obviously I don't have a partner. And it's mm. a very serious and emotional topic, yeah. right? Really serious, mm. as any woman would know. And Phil spent the whole interview grilling me about my exes and sex. Right. To talk about all the different sex I'd had and sex with, you know, how many people I'd slept with and all sorts of, like, nasty stuff mm. about sex. 
and I and it was just vile. And I came off literally wanting to cry and be sick because yeah. I was like, I've gone on there to talk about freezing my eggs because I want to have a child and I don't have a partner. Right. And he has belittled the whole thing and made turns the whole interview really, really crude. Um, what I have also seen over the years, I've been on this morning many times, um, is that neither Holly or Phil are nice at all to you unless you can do something for them. Right. So if you're bigger than they are, like a Hollywood A-list star, right. they won't be nice to you. Right. Um, there's no niceness whatsoever off camera. On I was going to say, so what's it like when you when you arrive to do the show? Do they come and see you? Do they talk to no. you? Do you have no. sort of, you have sort of producers talking to you, and then you don't see them until you actually go and sit on the sofa? You don't see them until you're sitting on the sofa, right. and if you do happen to pass them in the hallway, they won't even say hello to you. Right. Um, they treat you like literally you're just nothing. Right. Um, I remember seeing Holly in Barbados years ago. And um, we were at a party and um, Holly knows full well who I am. I've been on this morning many, many times. Right. And she completely blanked me. She tried to act like she didn't even know me. Mm. And um, so I made a point of going up to her and tapping her and going, hello, how are you? Right. And she looked so like mortified because she, she, I'd sort of caught her blanking me. Right. Um, and it was so rude and unnecessary. Right. Um, I mean, I can't name names, no. but there's a very famous person who's who I'm friends with his mum and very big celebrity star mm. and friends with his mum. And she said to me years and years and years ago, again, we were at another party, and she said to me, I cannot stand Holly Willoughby. She yeah. said, I don't know why my son is friends with her. She said, that woman will only be nice to people that can do something for her. Mm. Uh, and I share that opinion and feels the same, yeah. you know, unless you can do something for them, i.e. further their career right. in some way, they're not interested in, be, in even talking to you. No. Literally well, I don't think anyone's going to be furthering his career anytime soon, are they? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but what about what they're like with each other? What did you see there? Because obviously, if you've been on a few times, you might have an idea of how they yeah, get... Well, I, and what's I the chemistry between them off, off camera? I didn't see anything off camera because I never saw them off camera. Right. You know, they wouldn't, they would treat you like you were nothing. Mm. You were nothing, you know. And as soon as your interview had finished, they would rush you off the set. They yeah. wouldn't even look over and talk to you and be nice, you know, and say, oh, thanks for that, or how are you, or, you know. They would just treat you like you were nothing. Mm. And um, and I used to just hate going on this morning. I, I, I did it at the time because I was promoting various things, whether that was my own documentary. And the money, was, the money's pretty good to go on there as well. I mean, I know people who went on there, and then there was a time when you'd literally be handed an envelope full of cash, and that was it. Oh, I've um, never had. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you ever had that, but it was, you know, that was, yeah. I'm told that was what it was like a few years ago, um, uh, where, where you just go, oh, that'll, that'll do, thanks very much indeed. So for, for a sort of five minutes hit, you'd get a few hundred quid. You know, why wouldn't you? Yeah. No, I used to get probably £500 a time yeah. of going on there, but um, not certainly not in cash. Right. But, um, yeah, I just... I, I would do it to promote something I was doing, like mm. a documentary or whatever, that, right. you know, needed promotion. But uh, a couple of times they had me on as like a... a sort of like a roving reporter where yes. they'd have me on to talk about news events or right. whatever. Right. And my agent at the time said to me oh it's a really good thing you should do it but I mean I literally even when I was on there as their roving reporter mm. nobody spoke to me yeah. beforehand nobody right. spoke to me afterwards right. no. and did you, you ever were... run up against Martin Frizzell the, the, the editor as he's now called not to my knowledge right. I mean, 
I, I couldn't tell you what he looked he like. He was a, so sort of, a little Scottish guy that would be roaming around. Don't know. Yeah. There was that many people roaming around and you would just get left on your own. Right. They'd shove you in the dressing room until you were ready to go on air and then they'd drag you out, throw you on air and you'd be thrown back off again. Right. And um, would they tell you anything not to do, like don't say this or that or the other? Um... They would, they would brief you what, I mean, like the interview I was really upset with, they would brief you what the interview would be about. Um, and they, like my one was, you know, about freezing your eggs, about how tough it is and, and emotional and my journey and everything else. And then, of course, you get on the mm. sofa and they completely change that and they, they don't stick to that. And mm. they come out, like Phil came out with all this stuff about sex and my past relationships and past boyfriends and how things went wrong. And actually, at the time, it was even more hurtful right. because I had an investigation going on with one of my exes. Mm. So I wasn't allowed to talk about it. And he's trying to make it look like it was my fault, mm. like I just hold down a relationship or something. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, Like I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about freezing my ex. Yeah, um, it, yeah they were... They were not nice people, mm. absolutely not nice people. And can I just say, while I've got this voice yes. here, all this at Holly, I didn't know, I didn't know. You did. Everybody at ITV knew, mm. quite clearly, everybody at ITV knew. Again, in my opinion, um, there's no way people didn't know. I knew years ago about this young man right. in question. Well, I mean, the thing is, ITV denied it. I mean, one of the things that, that you said you were talking about it ages ago and you wrote about it, you tweeted about it and everything else. I yeah. mean, people have been saying to, 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 to us, you know, well, all these people that said they knew, why didn't they say? Well, lots of people did say, but ITV yes. denied it. Holly denied it. Uh, and Phil yep. denied it. So after a while, if you can't prove something, you can't just keep saying it because you might get, you know, sued for it. That's it. And I, and that's actually why I stopped tweeting about it, right. because I tweeted about it so much and was so angry mm. that at the end I thought, you know what, I'm probably going to get sued if I carry right. on, so I'm just going to drop it. Because then we heard about this whole NDA thing, right. you know, it wasn't allowed to be talked about. And I thought, oh, God, I better not mention the guy's name then. Right. And, um, and so but, did you get, did you sort of get non, did you stop getting invited on after, after Oh, yeah, 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 yeah asked back after that was after lipstick gate and because i called them out on their behavior i said holly should have told me as a girl there's a girl code amongst women holly should have told me i had lipstick on my teeth yes she said afterwards she said i did tell you yeah she told me when we went to an ad break yeah so interview had finished right interview had finished so i then made a big thing and i I think i did a youtube video or Mm. i did a video somewhere where i sort of said Holly's got no girl code whatsoever because she knew how stupid I looked with the lipstick on my teeth. Yeah. And she just allowed that to continue. By the way, I have got dirt all over my top because uh, <laughs> I run an animal sanctuary. That's and, fine. Uh, but listen, we're much more real here at Talk TV. We don't mind yeah, what you look like. We're not about, saying, you know, so we're, not buffing you, we're not buffing you all up. I mean, you, the way you look there on, on this morning, I mean, you look like you just stepped out of a film set. You know, I mean, we, we yeah. take people no, we take people as they are, Jodie, you know. Thank you. And, and, and but, so, yeah, just in case people start pointing out that that's nothing compared, you know, lipstick gate's nothing compared to this. That is um, chicken gunk. Yes. No, quite. Kind of- so how um, is how is the farm animal rescue business going? What are you up to with oh, that? It's amazing. It's so amazing. It's the happiest I've ever been. It's all I've ever wanted to do. A um, hundred times better than that showbiz life that yeah. I was never. I mean, it's pretty vacuous. I mean, it will come as no surprise oh. to people to find out that, you know, the people presenting television programmes are not all they seem to be. <laughs> no. I know. And, but, you know, again, going back to Holly and Phil, that, um, 
she her claiming she didn't know anything about it and right. she's been lied to, they would go on holiday together every year. Right. They had holidays together every yeah. year. Yeah. Don't pretend you don't know. Like that young man in question was with Phil every time they went out, right. and that's been documented by. Well, there's been. Of them. I mean, we've just yeah. seen some pictures of him on the set. We've seen pictures of yeah. him at uh, awards ceremonies. We've seen pictures of yeah. him in studio. He's seen him on the yeah. show. I mean, the idea that nobody went. Who's that bloke? And um, what's he doing? And why does he keep well, turning up? Also heard you know, that he's been taxis to and from Phil's yeah. house yeah. to the studio yeah. that the ITV were paying for. Mm. So chauffeur cars back and forward from Phil's house to the studio. Yeah. The fact that Holly's pretending not to know about this, it just blows my mind. Mm. She's clearly trying to save her own skin and save her own career. Yeah. She knew about this. She knew about it. But it this. seems this- to me, though, this whole deal about you know him telling everyone he lied to them and that's kind of the way that they've said to him, this is how... You know, we all kind of come out of this is we say that we didn't know and you say that you lied to everybody and then we could go, oh, we didn't know. Yeah, but that is it. I think that's what's happened. They've said to him, you say, release a statement saying you lied. We'll try and clean it up our end. You know, they're trying to like manage it, aren't they? They're trying to manage it to all come out looking the best they can. Yeah. you know, because even Phil's saying, well, while it was unwise, it wasn't illegal. No, it was might not have been illegal if, if you'd had sex with him after he was 16. Yeah. But I can tell you now that he met him when he was way younger than 16. Right. Yeah, and but so- we, don't, we don't know what happened there. But I can tell you this. I reckon that down at the old ITV this morning studios, there's more dirt than there is in your chicken coop. I can promise you that. And there's a lot of dirt in my chicken coop. Yeah, I bet. Listen, good to talk to you, Jodie. Thank you very much indeed. Jodie Marsh, TV personality, owner of Fripps Farm Animal Rescue. Uh, She's got no doubt about how she thinks uh, Holly and Phil are as individuals. She's not very keen on them, it must be said. Um, Surprisingly, this is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 